Today on RVN World News, we examine the growing mutant menace. It's a concern of worldwide proportions. This scene took place in Russia two weeks ago as a young mutant stood in defiance of the military. Freeze, beauty! Hey, bub, you should have called in sick today. And here we are again with our seventh issue of Comics on Consoles, a podcast dedicated to the in-depth exploration and analysis of video games that feature the timeless heroes featured in the pages of your favorite comics. I'm your host, Chris Clow, and in honor of May's big theatrical film release, the show will be taking its inaugural journey to the Xavier School for Gifted Youngsters. Since we've never talked about the team at any length, let me spend the first part of this show telling you about the Mutant Marvels and the journey that led us to this very notable game release that has their team's name on it. Also, just as a quick aside, I won't take up too much of your time with this, but I'm sorry for the delay with this issue. Thank you for your patience, and I hope you enjoy it. Now, let's jump into our subject game. Current fans on the younger side have never really known a world that existed without Marvel's iconic X-Men being prominently featured in some form or fashion. In truth, I don't either, having been born in the late 1980s, with the most vivid childhood memories taking place in the 90s. By that point in time, the X-Men were, by far, the most dominant comic book property on the shelves of specialty stores, and in those days, on the racks at convenience stores and gas stations. One of the many timeless creations of Marvel Universe architects Stan Lee and Jack Kirby from the early 1960s, the X-Men arose out of the success of characters like Spider-Man, whom Lee created with artist Steve Ditko, and other Lee-Kirby creations like the Hulk, the Fantastic Four, Thor, and Iron Man. Reading the accounts of both Lee and Kirby paints an interesting picture about the team's creation, from Lee's perspective, the idea behind a species of people born with special abilities was, quote, the easy way out, since he didn't want to create an entirely new team with separate specific origins surrounding how they earned their powers. Saying they were mutants and that they were just born that way was creatively easier. On the other side of things, in an interview conducted about seven years before his death, Jack Kirby, rightfully known by his moniker King Kirby, spoke about how the inclusion of a mentor figure was natural for a group of characters with uncontrollable abilities during their adolescence. In those terms, Kirby said, quote, Of course it was the natural thing to do. Instead of disorienting or alienating people who were different from us, I made the X-Men part of the human race, which they were. Already, you may be able to tell that a primary theme of the X-Men is the idea of flying in the face of a natural human inclination that some anthropologists call the demonization of the other. Sometimes it's very easy for people to dismiss and even hate a person, group, or culture that they simply don't understand. The X-Men were meant to counter this perception. In Kirby's words, he said, quote, I felt that if we train the mutants our way, they'll help us, and not only help us, but achieve a measure of growth in their own sense. And so, we could all live together." End quote. 
The X-Men made their first appearance in the first issue of their self-titled series, cover dated September 1963. An early run of success was followed by a sales lull by the end of the decade, which would partially be alleviated by writer Roy Thomas and artist Neil Adams coming aboard the title in 1969. This small spike from the new creative team was short-lived, however, and Marvel resorted to reprinting previous stories from issues 67 through 93. Then, in 1975, came one of the most well-regarded oversized one-shots ever produced in the history of the comic book medium, Giant Size X-Men No. 1, created by the now legendary team of writer Len Wein and artist Dave Cockrum. At the time of its publication, it was the first new X-Men story in five years, and paved the way for what is now considered to be some of the most definitive additions to the team's roster. While several new characters joined the team, the biggest additions by far came in the form of Russian powerhouse Colossus, the teleporting Nightcrawler, and the weather-manipulating Storm. Also becoming a regular fixture on the team in this issue was Len Wein's metal-clawed berserker, Wolverine, who first appeared the year before facing off against Marvel's iconic Green Behemoth in The Incredible Hulk number 181. These new additions would lead toward the legendary run of writer Chris Claremont on the Uncanny X-Men series throughout the 1980s, to Wolverine's breakout status as a major Marvel character, and some of the most memorable and definitive X-Men stories ever produced. The Dark Phoenix Saga, Days of Future Past, The Trial of Magneto, and God Loves Man Kills are just some of the stories produced during this period. It would also see the rise of characters and organizations that it's now difficult to imagine the X-Men without, like the Hellfire Club, Mr. Sinister, Sabretooth, and another guy who calls himself Apocalypse. The run of solid stories in the 80s in the ongoing X-Men comics would lead to a couple of the first X-Men video games in 1989, and the team would be further catapulted into a then-unprecedented level of popularity throughout the 1990s. No doubt smelling money in the air, Marvel put a great deal of time and effort into creating an extremely expansive library of titles that revolved around the X-Men's corner of the Marvel Universe. In addition to bringing in a flood of new characters, teams, and titles, the 90s would also see an increasing level of X-Men adaptations in other media, from a popular animated television series on Fox Kids, to an expansive and sought-after toy line and other notable major forays of the characters into the realm of video games. Between the period of 1990 and 1999, 12 X-Men video games were released. It was also during this time that the comic book speculator boom would slowly see a major worldwide atrophy in the entire comic book industry, with years of both major publishers overprinting legions of issues and creating a ridiculous amount of variant covers for every single book, which ultimately led to one of the lowest ever points of the publishing side of the comic book industry. Perhaps this was exemplified in no greater place then with the publication of 1992's highly anticipated X-Men Volume 2 Number 1 by a returning Chris Claremont and an up-and-coming artist named Jim Lee. Pre-order sales for that new first issue maintain records which have still never been broken, with pre-order sales amounting to over 8.1 million copies. While only about half of that many were sold, no comic book before or since has garnered nearly as much movement and part of those sales were at least partially generated by Marvel creating five variant covers to incentivize retailers to overorder the issue. 
If too many people think they're going to be able to put their kids through college by buying a new number one issue, they became all too aware that having between 4 and 8 million copies of that book freely available isn't exactly an effective path to a major economic investment, to say the least. While someone who probably bought 10 copies of that single issue in an attempt to buy low and sell high might disagree, perhaps all of this would work out for the best. One of the unanticipated consequences of the crash of the speculator market was Marvel Comics filing for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection in 1996, causing the company to reorganize many of its assets. In addition to merging Marvel Entertainment Group with toy manufacturer Toy Biz to make the business solvent again, one of the other things that the company did was license the media rights to several of its iconic characters to prominent Hollywood studios. Though taking place immediately before the bankruptcy, the studio that picked up the license for the X-Men was 20th Century Fox, impressed by the popularity of the animated series from the early 1990s. The reality of the bankruptcy made the potential success of an X-Men feature film very important, though, and after a few years, Fox released director Brian Singer's original X-Men film starring Hugh Jackman, Patrick Stewart, and Halle Berry in the summer of 2000. Now, these days we obviously enjoy a great deal of superhero adaptations across both television and the silver screen, but if you want to trace the current boom of comics-based media to its primary focal point, then that point has to be the release of the first X-Men movie. As soon as it hit at the box office, studios began buying up virtually every comics-based property they could get their hands on. Since Warner Brothers wasn't letting many of its DC Comics-based characters go, that resulted in the early 2000s being very prominently Marvel-heavy. The success of X-Men would obviously lead to the creation of tie-in video games, and as the film series continued to be successful with subsequent sequels, a lot of video games had been produced. Since 2000 alone, there have been 13 individual X-Men games released across multiple platforms, and the X-Men have appeared in 10 additional Marvel-based games. Beyond a few handheld games, the biggest X-Men game releases came in the form of the Mutant Academy series, which consisted of a series of fighters that produced three entries between 2000 and 2002. While those games could have easily produced a fourth entry coming out of the high level of attention to the comics as well as the theatrical success of X2 X-Men United, Activision would ultimately decide to take the X-Men games in a different direction. It was this decision that would lead to our subject game, and even though Activision didn't know it, they would help to create a series of games that would prove to be some of the most beloved in the history of video games based on the iconic characters of superhero comics. On April 21st, 2003, Activision put out a press release announcing an ambitious new game that aimed to be, quote, the ultimate mutant Marvel team-up. This game would be called X-Men Legends, and would feature a pretty expansive roster of 15 of Marvel's legendary mutants. In addition to a single-player experience that promised gamers the ability to assemble their X-Men Dream Team, it also promised drop-in cooperative play, as well as a practice mode in the X-Men's legendary Danger Room. Legends would be developed by prior Activision partner Raven Software, who by that point had never actually developed a video game for play exclusively on consoles. Breaking onto the scene with 1992's Black Crypt for the Amiga and MS-DOS, the Madison, Wisconsin-based developer had developed a series of highly popular first-person shooters based on both the Star Trek and Star Wars universes. 
In 2000, they released the highly acclaimed FPS game, Star Trek Voyager Elite Force. Featuring the entire cast of the then-current Star Trek TV show, Elite Force placed you in the shoes of an elite member of the USS Voyager's specialized hazard team, which basically means that they were a highly trained group of military personnel doing very, very dangerous away missions. Elite Force was extremely popular upon release, and Activision even commissioned a sequel by another developer after Raven had moved on to another project. This other project led them to partner with LucasArts in 2002 for the now legendary FPS game Star Wars Jedi Knight 2 Jedi Outcast, a sequel to 1997's original Jedi Knight game. That game's protagonist, Kyle Katarn, had abandoned his connection to the Force after becoming fearful of seduction to the dark side. When a new dark Jedi threatens to unearth the secrets of the ancient Valley of the Jedi in an effort to create an army of Force-sensitive foot soldiers that answer only to the dark, Katarn is forced to reconnect to the Force, regain his lightsaber, and become a Jedi Knight once more. The game proved to be a massive critical and commercial hit, and was even ported to consoles but not directly by Raven Software. The overall success of Jedi Outcast led to Raven's development of a direct sequel in the form of 2003's Jedi Knight Jedi Academy, and that was the developer's final game release before X-Men Legends would bow the following September. Having a desire to expand from the PC gaming space into the lucrative console space, Raven partnered with Activision, the holders of the X-Men video game license, to make a splash with a big, prominent licensed game. When it was decided by the team at Raven to make a role-playing game, or RPG, based on the X-Men characters, they then began to brainstorm design ideas. One of the developers that had familiarity with previous X-Men games offered the idea that a team dynamic would be beneficial, since previous X-Men games gave very little service to the idea of working together to accomplish a goal. While an initial inspiration was a turn-based RPG approach a la the highly popular Final Fantasy series, it became clear early on that the best way to create mass appeal and a fun cooperative experience was to put an emphasis on action. Because of this, the turn-based approach was nixed, but the team found that the overall change in game design would make the idea of working together quite a bit harder. Speaking with Game Informer magazine in 2003, Project co-lead Patrick Lipo explained, quote, It was basically Final Fantasy with X-Men. Over time, however, it really started to evolve. As development moved along, we added more and more elements of action and combat to it. One thing that remained a consistent mantra through the development of the game over the last few years has been the team. To be able to bring something like this to the X-Men universe was very important to us. Even when we moved to action, we went into it with the idea that you are controlling a team." End quote. After brainstorming some new ideas and testing different scenarios out, the one that felt most natural to the team was giving the player a total team of four characters to move through the levels with and then giving them the ability to switch between any character they wanted to on the fly. This helped to give a bit more credence to the RPG element of the experience, since there could be some scenarios that call for different abilities to be used by different heroes. Although not quite as active as a turn-based approach, this helped to preserve the idea that the characters were working together as a team, which would only be further emphasized by so-called couch co-op play between friends on a console. This added a new angle and a welcome depth element in the form of strategy. Giving some characters specific abilities over others naturally encouraged playtesters to switch between the members of their team, 
calling on different powers to accomplish different tasks. Are you having some difficulty with a certain wave of enemies? Switch to Iceman and freeze one of them before picking them off a few seconds later with Cyclops Optic Blasts. It wasn't exactly a traditional take on team-based play, but it was very easy to jump into, and the continued emphasis on action and combat also kept the gameplay continuously engaging. Indeed, it was clearly the intent of the developers to have the player dynamically switch between different characters in order to meet the needs of certain tasks. But this style of gameplay also necessitated an additional element in order to balance the difficulty. If you've played X-Men Legends, I don't need to tell you just how difficult different combat scenarios can get. Waves of enemies get progressively more difficult as you move through the game's story, and though it seems like you have an advantage by utilizing up to four different characters with independent health meters, you'll likely run into more than one scenario in a playthrough that'll involve losing almost all of your characters. To try and even things out, Raven placed extraction points in the game world. In addition to serving as a more traditional checkpoint system, the extraction points also allowed previously defeated characters to be revived. You could also switch different characters in your fuller roster out with others if you prefer, and try out a new combination of heroes if the forces of evil are proving to be a little too much for your initially chosen X-Men. Because the game was released during the generation that first brought online gaming to home consoles, the developers at Raven did entertain the idea of creating some kind of online multiplayer mode. It didn't make it very far in the development process, so it's not quite clear whether this would have involved online co-op play in the game's campaign, or if it would have been some kind of battle arena where you and a friend could face off your chosen team of respective X-Men. Raven ultimately decided not to include this mode, with project lead Rob G. telling IGN in an interview that the team chose to base the gameplay experience around what he called, quote, localized encounters. The other core element of the gameplay experience lies with character progression. In traditional RPG style, each character can be leveled up, which then grants you points to use on an individual character's skill tree, allowing you to tailor each of your chosen characters based on your own playing style. The interesting thing about the approach that Raven decided to take with this element of the game is the choice it gives you. You can either traditionally apply skill points yourself, but if that's not really an element of the game that you're keen on, you can also choose to have the game apply skill points in a more balanced fashion automatically. So, if you were interested in playing with a team of characters with an overall balanced approach on increasing power level, you can. If, though, you recognize that individual characters come with their own advantages that you're insightful in pointing out, then you can amp up Storm's ranged support abilities, Wolverine's in-your-face Berserker Rage, or take greater levels of damage by amping up Jean Grey's Telekinetic Shield. For Raven's part, they definitely seem to encourage players to take a hands-on approach in tailoring character skills, saying in multiple places that specialized characters are more effective than generalized ones. That pretty much covers the ins and outs of the overall gameplay experience, but like any comic book game, design is also a big part of the overall experience. The X-Men are obviously some of Marvel's most popular characters after all, and the long list of writers, artists, directors, actors, and other visionaries that have added to the rich legacy of the team across multiple mediums all bring something to the table. While you might be forgiven for thinking that the character designs were ripped right out of the popular films directed by Brian Singer, Raven and their design teams actually took a far more holistic approach to the looks of the worlds and to the X-Men themselves. 
The designs, when you look a little deeper, are actually far more representative of the comics than they are of the films. Specifically, the then-recent Ultimate X-Men series seems to be a primary design inspiration, and the characters are also similar in appearance to the way they showed up in Grant Morrison's reimagining in his series New X-Men, which is awesome, by the way. You should read it if you haven't. This decision was apparently a direct request from Marvel, who had hoped that the game would represent a bit of a grittier version of the mutant heroes. In instances where a character would be featured in the game who had yet to appear in either Ultimate X-Men or New X-Men, Raven employed their own designs to fit recognizable characters into the same visual philosophy that informed both of those books. The result was a nicely unified aesthetic that clearly stood apart from both the films and the comics, but in a weird way, also seemed to represent both. As for the characters themselves, the stated choice in choosing the game's roster came from an attempt to pick out the X-Men who had demonstrated the largest impact on the mythos in the then 40-year history of the characters. The resulting lineup of playable characters could all be classified as heavy hitters, from the usual suspects like Wolverine, Cyclops, Storm, and Jean Grey, on up through to Emma Frost, Gambit, Psylocke, Jubilee, and Magma. Another major aspect of the game's design centered on the fidelity of the game's graphics. In issue number three of this show, we went over exactly what cel-shaded graphics were and how their use in several major popular game releases of the early 2000s innovated a flat, almost two-dimensional look to models and environments that were obviously rendered in 3D. While Legends employs a degree of cel-shading in its overall design, Raven ultimately opted to create a more detailed aesthetic for the game overall. While the characters themselves seem to employ a limited amount of cell shading, a conscious choice on the part of the developers was to use high-resolution textures to bring out specific character details. Instead of using a flat color on the characters that provides that two-dimensional hand-drawn effect, the developers at Raven wanted their vision of the X-Men to feature textures that could stand up to the scrutiny of the game's very high resolution for the time, as well as the lighting effects that they would place into the game's rendering system. The most prominent use of traditional cell shading techniques came in the form of the bold, dark outline between all the characters. In his aforementioned interview with IGN, project lead Rob G. described the arrival at the look of the characters by saying, quote, We were drawn to that bold outline in the comics, the silhouette edging that many artists use in 2D drawings to provide a contrast from the environment around them to really pop the character forward in a 2D world. Inspired by this look, one of our tech artists was playing around with some 3D geometry settings on our character models, trying to recreate that look, and voila! With a little ingenuity and research, we had our look. After some finishing passes, we had characters with detailed skins that could stand up to game lighting, and they also had that great bold black outline that made our X-Men look like they were animated comic illustrations in a 3D environment. End quote. While this was certainly an ambitious effort on the part of Raven to try and evoke comics characters in a somewhat recognizable fashion for observers of comic book art, this general outlook on how to represent characters didn't really catch on in the way that it seemed Raven had hoped. Be that as it may, that does help to make X-Men Legends even more unique in the wider pantheon of comics-based games, precisely because the art style still stands as pretty unique. The result is that Legends is one of the last comics-based games that actually made a concerted effort to actually look like a comic book, at least to a point. 
Most console or PC-based comic book games that would follow opt to instead go for a more photorealistic look, barring some recognizable flourishes in character design here and there. Perhaps one of the most advanced elements of Legends, though, is in its resolution. High-definition television sets were only just being introduced to the wider appliance market in the early 2000s, and while most of the major consoles had HD capability built into their hardware, the amount of titles that actually natively supported a resolution of at least 720p are pretty scarce from the PS2, Xbox, and GameCube generation. Most PS2 and GameCube games actually supported a maximum resolution of 480p, technically known as enhanced definition, over the standard definition resolution of 480i. Microsoft's console, though, was a different story. As the device with the most powerful tech specs of the three major consoles of its generation, the Xbox has an overall higher percentage of titles that supported 720p resolution, along with a handful of titles that go up to 1080i. The PS2 had between two and four games in its entire library that supported 1080i, but contained no support whatsoever for 720p. The Xbox overall had a higher threshold of HD-capable titles, and X-Men Legends was one of them, supporting a resolution of 720p. The result is a generally much sharper graphical look when compared with a lot of other games of its generation, and makes the Xbox the clear platform to play Legends on, particularly if you want to play it on a modern HD TV. You will need to find some component cables and an actual original Xbox, though, since Legends is not backward compatible on an Xbox 360. Of course, though, one other important factor for any adaptation featuring a beloved comics character is the story. On this front, Raven was very well equipped by hiring a group of comic book writers and artists known collectively as Man of Action. These writers, Duncan Rulo, Joe Casey, Joe Kelly, and Stephen T. Siegel, all had experience writing for the two major comic book publishers. Joe Kelly, on his own, brings a great deal of credibility, since he was getting toward the end of a run on JLA, with other notable runs on Action Comics with Superman, and had spent the majority of his time at Marvel in the X-Men corner of the Marvel Universe. He's arguably one of the absolute best writers to ever tackle Deadpool, and served with distinction as the writer of the X-Men ongoing series in the late 1990s. Duncan Rolu served as the artist on a Venom Limited series as well as several X-Men books, and the majority of Joe Casey's late 90s work centered on X-Men, Wolverine, and Cable. Beyond all of these highly experienced members of Man of Action, Stan Lee is also credited in the game as a consultant on its story. The choice of Magma as the game's lead character came largely from her lack of major exposure or a clearly defined story arc or larger run in the comics. Magma was first brought to life in early 80s issues of New Mutants by writer Chris Claremont and artist Bob McCloud, but the Man of Action writers saw her as an appropriate blank slate on which they could project the player's experience. While many writers over the years have discussed how story scripts for video games have page counts that are often in excess of material actually used, the case of this game seems particularly surprising. In an interview with the collective Man of Action unit conducted again by IGN, the team stated that the full, finished script for the game totaled at about 500 pages. Part of the reason that so many pages were written was because there are several instances in which the player can talk to a plethora of other non-player characters or NPCs. The script as the team wrote it had to encompass all of the possible interactions in the game, but the story itself was relatively linear. As for the story that the game told, 
It revolves around Magma's discovery of her mutant powers. As a government agency quickly descends upon her, she's taken by two mutants from Magneto's Brotherhood, Mystique and the Blob. Not long afterward, she's rescued by Wolverine and Cyclops, who bring her into the fold of the X-Men and welcome her to the Xavier School for Gifted Youngsters in order to develop her powers. As she trains, the Brotherhood attempt to free Magneto from captivity aboard an American battleship. They succeed, and after another mission results in the capture of Professor X himself, the X-Men are made aware of two plots that need to be stopped. One coming from Magneto's latest effort to exact punishment on homo sapiens everywhere, and another coming from anti-mutant extremists who build a new round of sentinels to try and wipe out the race once and for all. In addition to the truthfully written X-Men narrative present in the game, one of its other very strong elements is centered on the voice cast. Vocal performer Steven Bloom, who's now mostly known to current fans as the voice of Zeb Aurelios in Disney XD's Star Wars Rebels, began a long vocal association with Wolverine by first playing him in X-Men Legends. Voice acting veteran Grey Delisle would play the villainous Mystique, and respected British character actor Tony Jay, perhaps best known to comics fans as Lex Luthor's assistant Nigel in Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman, provided the voice for Magneto. Lou Diamond Phillips voiced the X-Man Forge, while Danica McKellar of the Wonder Years and the West Wing fame performed as Jubilee. The most prominent vocal performance in the game, though, came from Professor X himself. Though far from the first video game he'd participate in, this was certainly an instance where his presence elevated the entire production and added a degree of legitimacy to all of the proceedings. Charles Xavier was voiced in X-Men Legends by none other than Sir Patrick Stewart. It's interesting, especially considering that Legends isn't a movie tie-in game. Still, because of Stewart's association with another multimedia franchise in the form of Star Trek, it seems like he got used to bringing his character to life in virtually every medium he would pop up in. While his very first video game role was as King Richard, natural for a classically trained Shakespearean actor, in 1993's Lands of Lore The Throne of Chaos on PC, the vast majority of Stewart's video game work are split between his two most identifiable film and television roles, as Captain Jean-Luc Picard from Star Trek The Next Generation, and as Professor X in the X-Men films. His first video game as Captain Picard was actually alongside the entire Next Generation cast for 1995's Star Trek The Next Generation A Final Unity. Developed by Spectrum Holobyte and published by Microprose on the MS-DOS PC platform, A Final Unity was a point-and-click adventure and featured a stellar performance from Stewart. He would go on to voice Picard in video games constantly over the next decade, in such well-regarded titles as Star Trek Hidden Evil, both Star Trek Armada games, as well as Bridge Commander, Starfleet Command 3, and Elite Force 2. His final vocal turn as Captain Picard was in the ill-fated Star Trek Legacy in 2006, which actually featured all the captains of every iteration of Star Trek, from the original series William Shatner up through Enterprise's Scott Bakula. His first turn as Professor X in video games was in 2002's X-Men Next Dimension, which was the third and final entry in the Mutant Academy subseries. He reprised the role in 2003's X2 Wolverine's Revenge, so the job on Legends actually arrived as only his third video game outing as Professor X. And, just for the record, 
you can be sure that the aforementioned games will be covered in future issues of Comics on Consoles. Look, it should be no mystery to anyone with functional ears that Patrick Stewart has a voice that's simply made for voiceover work. Where it's not uncommon to find live-action performers phoning in their vocal performances for tie-in video games, Stewart, by my estimation anyways, has never fallen into that trap. His time in the theater gave him a keen understanding of what makes for good, resonant vocal delivery, which makes his video game performances both pleasant to listen to, while also bringing a level of overall truthfulness to the characters he already represents so well in live action. So, as you can probably imagine, X-Men Legends had quite a bit of things going for it in its development, its presentation, its story, and the talent it brought in to play these iconic Marvel characters. It wanted to make a concerted effort to appeal to both the crowds of RPG players and action game fans, while also giving players a sense of camaraderie with their teammates, even when they played by themselves. What would be its fate, though? The game went gold in early August of 2004, and was finally released on September 21st that same year. I likely don't need to tell anyone listening to this how comic book video games are often poorly received, especially in the early 2000s. This wasn't the case with all of them, of course, including some instances we've documented on this show, but the odds were certainly against Legends when its street date finally arrived. Thankfully, though, a very good development studio combined a lot of other first-class elements, and the reception that X-Men Legends received can be summed up pretty accurately with the phrase, Universal Acclaim. Sure, there are some outliers, but in the vast majority of cases, X-Men Legends received ratings of at least 8 or higher on a 10-point scale virtually across the board, regardless of platform. If you look up the original review written by Game Informer's Matt Miller, it carries a headline that calls Legends, quote, everything that you hoped for. He concludes his review by saying, quote, with surprises galore, I constantly felt myself giggling like an extremely geeky schoolgirl as new characters showed up and storylines unfolded before me. There's an impressive melding of the different X-universes here, so that someone who has just seen the movies should feel comfortable, but someone who's read every X-Men issue since the 60s will be more than content. Almost all of the well-known characters make an appearance, and many of the lesser-known allies and foes do as well. With over 20 hours of gameplay and one of the most enjoyable cooperative multiplayer experiences I've ever had, I couldn't recommend Legends more highly to fans and newbies alike." End quote. The second opinion from the same outlet couldn't help heaping praise onto the game either, with Andrew Reiner writing, quote, "...not only is Legends one of the best comic book games to date, it's one of the finest dungeon crawlers as well." Excelsior. Both writers scored the game 9 out of 10. At GameSpy, Reviewer Will Tuttle seemed particularly taken with the game's authenticity to the X-Men license when he says, quote, If you're in any way a fan of the franchise, you should run out and buy X-Men Legends right now. There's a lot of content to keep you busy for quite a while, and I can guarantee that you'll find things that'll put a smile on your face. If you aren't a fan, it's still worth checking out, especially if you enjoy hack-and-slash dungeon crawlers. It's nice to see that everyone's favorite mutants are finally getting a chance to shine. Now, if only we could do something about the Justice League. It looks like Warner Brothers was thinking similarly, but that's a story for another time. 
In any event, Tuttle and GameSpy scored Legends with a 4.5 out of 5. Though IGN's Hillary Goldstein didn't score Legends quite as highly as some of his colleagues at other outlets, his language in the very beginning of his review for the game distills the experience of general frustration with comics-based games at large, finally encountering something special very effectively. He said, quote, I've played some really, really bad X-Men games in my life. There really have only been a couple of good X-Men games throughout the entire existence of home consoles, and not a single good one this generation. It's been nothing but disappointment for X-Fans for the past few years. Playing Activision's latest, X-Men Legends, is a lot like Day 41 for Noah, seeing the first ray of sunshine after a whole lot of darkness and downpour is thrilling. While not perfect, Legends does justice to the X-Men franchise and will almost certainly please fans. It's about damn time. End quote. The lowest score that I could find from a credible outlet came from Eurogamer. In their review of the Xbox version, reviewer Patrick Garrett writes, quote, If you're not especially thrilled by the X-Men in general, it's likely you'll see Legends as okay, as mediocre, as middle of the road. It's a good superhero console RPG, a well-made game with some terrible dialogue, genuinely good combat and multiplayer, but some obvious camera issues. The story is long, unique, and involved, but your liking for Legends will stand or fall on its premise. You're controlling superheroes in an action RPG. Legends has features coming out of its ears, in keeping with the general mutant theme, but you'll need to be an RPG-slash-mutant-slash-comic fan to truly care. That's no bad thing, but this is pretty niche, if sometimes highly enjoyable and surprisingly complex stuff with some niggling glitches. Wolverine looks dead good when he does his special moves, though. End quote. He scored the game a 7 out of 10. While I can certainly understand Eurogamer and Mr. Garrett's perspective, I don't necessarily agree with it. As a game, X-Men Legends doesn't present a story that seems overly embedded in the mythology it's representing. If nothing else, it seems like one of the more accurate other media adaptations of the X-Men in general, especially compared with any number of the team's movies that have been produced over the past 16 years. The fidelity to the source material doesn't seem to create a barrier to entry either. I very much believe that if someone plays Legends and enjoys the game, it wouldn't turn them off of the larger mythology. Instead, it could very well turn them onto it. That notwithstanding, though, X-Men Legends was and is likely to be exactly what it's designed to be. A fun game with a good story. Its high critical reception would lend itself to a pretty solid run on sales, as exemplified by the fact that it was inducted into each of the greatest hits lineups on all three consoles. It got the red label on the PS2, joined the Player's Choice lineup on the GameCube, and became a platinum hit on the Xbox. Beyond its sales success, Legends would also have quite an impact on comics-based gaming at large, popularizing the innovations to the RPG genre. The success of Legends was built up further by the release of a direct sequel, but both this game and its sequel would also lead to other games that have gone on to become some of the absolutely best-regarded entries of comics-based gaming over the last 15 years. It would also inspire the creation of a very similar outing by another developer dealing with the characters of Marvel's distinguished competition. Those are, obviously, stories for future issues of this show. But if there's anything you should take away after listening to the formulation of the experience that is X-Men Legends, 
it's this. Drop what you're doing and play it. You're definitely in for a good time, especially if you've got a friend with you, and it would prove to be an important foundational building block for several experiences that were still to come. I'm Deborah Owen for RBN World News. Our top story tonight, the attack on the USS Arbiter. This event gave General Kincaid more fuel for his anti-mutant sentiment. At a press conference, the general said that should things continue in this vein... Homo sapiens, we stand upon the edge of a brave new world, and evolution has found you lacking. I invite all mutants to congregate at the mount. Together, we will force the Homo sapiens to make way for their true masters. Homo superior. That's about all we've got time for in issue number seven of Comics on Consoles. I hope you've enjoyed the show and definitely encourage you to come back for future issues in the months to come. As I said before, X-Men Legends is not backward compatible on an Xbox 360, but if you have a first-gen PS3 or a Nintendo Wii lying around, then you can play the PS2 or GameCube versions on their corresponding successors. Just for future reference, I do absolutely want to touch on X-Men Legends 2 Rise of Apocalypse when the time comes, but because we covered a pretty significant amount of ground for the first game and the X-Men franchise at large, I just want to let you know that I may just make an issue devoted to the sequel as a point one, as opposed to a full issue. I don't have any solid time frame for covering the sequel, but if it's something you'd be inclined to look for, be sure to keep an eye out on ComicsOnConsoles.com or any of the show's various social media outlets. Now, on to future plans. While I was intending to release both this issue and issue number eight in the month of June, unfortunately time got away from me. So... The plan right now is to bring you both issues 8 and 9 in the month of July, which should arrive in pretty rapid succession. In the case of issue number 8, I've decided that it's finally time to deal with one of my absolutely favorite comics characters and his very spotty history in the medium of video games. So, issue number 8 will be a couple of things you've seen before from this show, Its subject game is a movie tie-in, which failed to release day and date with the movie in theaters. It features talent from the film it's based on, which is one of its saving graces, surprisingly enough. And even though it's mediocre, you could likely still weirdly enough call it one of this character's better video game outings. Which is strange to say. Be sure to join us for Comics on Consoles issue number 8 as we leap into the sky faster than a speeding bullet for the first time on the show with Superman Returns, developed by EA Tiberon and published by Electronic Arts in November of 2006 for the original Microsoft Xbox, the Xbox 360, and Sony's PlayStation 2. Look for that issue to be released by mid-July. Issue number 9 is slated to arrive by the end of that same month, and I'll announce that subject fully in the closing minutes of issue number 8. In the meantime, feel free to visit ComicsOnConsoles.com, follow the show on Facebook and Twitter, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, Podbean, or your favorite podcasting app of choice. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, then please feel free to send an email in my direction to Chris at ComicsOnConsoles.com. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. I read anything and everything that comes my way. Comics on Consoles is a member of the Pod Tyrant Podcast Network. Until next time, keep saving the world, gamers and comics fans. After all, the world needs people who continue to believe in heroes. So, 
Why not play one in a video game? Thanks for listening. Take care. And we'll talk with you again soon. This show is part of the Pod Tyrant Network. For more podcasts, interviews, and content, visit podtyrant.com.